the agencies um, that work on the Venezuelan displacement crisis, they say that, that all of the resources that they need in order to help Venezuelans, only 16% of, of the funding that they need has been provided. According to United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, more than 7.1 million migrants and refugees have left Venezuela since 2015 and are scattered across the planet. An overwhelming majority of them can now be found across Latin America and the wider Western Hemisphere. Today, we'll be diving in at the complex issue of Venezuelan migration. It is an issue that has dominated the news recently both in the United States and abroad, and it's a topic that requires a careful analysis and understanding of the hemisphere's refugee regime history. Our guest today has studied this issue in great detail. I'm joined today by Omar Hamoud Gallego, fellow in political science and public policy at the London School of Economic School of Public Policy. He is a migration and refugee policy researcher and has also studied challenges to democratic legitimacy worldwide. He has previously worked as well for UNHCR in Colombia and has published for the International Migration Review and the American Political Science Review. He understands the region very well and has written plenty on the Venezuelan migrant and refugee crisis. And given that so much has happened recently and still fresh off the news, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So, Omar, welcome to Veneco and thank you for agreeing to participate. Thank you, Juan. Thanks for the very kind introduction. So, Omar, I'm fascinated by the scope of your research. As we were talking prior to going on the air, Venezuelan migration is a topic I know very well. It was the subject of my master's capstone thesis last year, and I really wanted to choose carefully who to invite over to Veneco for this episode. There's just a lot of really good research out there, but the scope of yours is very impressive. So let's dive in, Omar. Your research suggests Latin America has flexibilized its asylum and refugee laws over the course of the last 30 years. Can you begin by giving us a more or less brief walkthrough of what caused these flexible migration regimes? Have they really stayed this flexible over the years? Absolutely. Well, um, it's a, it, it's quite an interesting question. Um, this is this is what struck me. So we at the at the fir at first when I started my research, it was very little in terms of what our refugee policies, what do they look like in Latin America, and so I started analyzing them systematically. And what I found out was that um, these policies were very liberal, but liberal to an extent that I couldn't understand. So, for instance, just to give an example. If you were to ask for asylum in a country even like Nicaragua, in theory, you should be awarded a lawyer for free um, to um, basically go through your case together with you, right? Or um, if you are fleeing some sort of uh, environmental catastrophe, then you can claim asylum in Ecuador. So you, we have this very um, liberal, very generous refugee policy. And I really didn't understand why is this the case? And so I went through it and I eventually wrote a, um, a research um, with with a colleague of mine, Feline Fryer, who's a professor at the Universidad del Pacifico in Peru. And, and what we explain is that most of these policies are very liberal and generous, but they're basically never applied. And so we wanted to understand, you know, why is this the case? Because clearly in the, in the case of the Venezuelan displacement crisis, many Venezuelans have not been recognized as refugees, um, even though in theory they could be and they should be. And so we, we went through the sort of the development process of all these legislations and what we uh, basically came up with is, is a very simple explanation. These policies were developed all across Latin America, 
just to um, as a signaling device, basically just to showcase that the countries in the region are very generous, that countries that were formerly authoritarian, you know, in many cases, countries in, in especially in South America, uh, became democratic in the mid 80s, early 90s. And so as part also of, of, of that democratization process of the so-called pink tide, right? So the fact mm -hmm. that especially in the early decade of the 2000s, many governments in the region were left-wing and also as a consequence of regional integration. So you had, for instance, freedom of movement or a sort of freedom of movement really through, for instance, institutions like Mercosur. And so when you put all of that together, that led into a scenario in which governments were promoting uh, themselves as protectors of, of migrants' rights basically trying to, to um, put themselves as the opposite of northern uh, migrant receiving countries like the US and in Europe, where many Latin Americans live and, and where they struggle, right? So basically the idea was, we have very generous migration and refugee policies, and, and we try to contrapose that and show to um, countries in the global north that we are not like them. We are much more generous and uh, we treat very well refugees. Now, the, 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 the little detail is that all of this took place in a period in which Latin America barely had any refugee movement and in intra-regional migration was very small. So this is more or less what we found and what we explain in our research. So you argue one of the reasons for this trait it was the presence of pink tide governments during the early 21st century. Are there, however, outliers? We know, for example, there were very few right-wing governments during this period. But I'm wondering which countries have historically, not just during the pink tide, but before as well, been more hostile or closed to asylum seekers and refugees. Are there any common denominators that explain this? Like, for example, developmental differences, regime type, or I don't know, any other? So there are a few countries that are actually, well, one of them, interestingly enough, is Venezuela. The other one is Panama. And the third, I would say, is the Dominican Republic. Mm. We, should, we could also include Cuba, but Cuba, as we because it's a dictatorship that has been going on for many years, we will exclude it for the moment. And it's interestingly enough because there is, a, there is one thing that is called uh, the Cartagena refugee definition, which is a definition that basically says that if you are fleeing your, your country because your life uh, and your safety or freedom have been threatened by things such as general generalized violence or foreign aggression and other things, then you can apply for asylum. It's a very generous refugee definition. And this has been um, incorporated into the legislation of, of almost all of the countries in Latin America, except Venezuela, Panama, and the Dominican Republic. And this, this is quite interesting because these are the countries that for the period in which basically most countries, uh, in, in which most countries um, updated their uh, their refugee and migration regimes. Um, these are the only countries that actually had migrants and refugees, right? So Venezuela hosted many Colombian refugees, people that were displaced uh, by the conflict. Similar thing for Ecuador, right? So many Colombians fleeing across the border into Ecuador, especially uh, starting from the late 1990s until sort of the, the end of the first decade of the 2000s. And for the Dominican Republic, of course, you have the Haitians, right? They These are two countries, but they're they're only an island. And so it's interesting that of, of all the region, the only countries that actually never adopted um, liberal asylum policies are the ones that actually had refugees and migrants. So speaking of regional outliers, have you by any chance done any research on Trinidad and Tobago? And the reason I ask is because more than any other country in the hemisphere, Trinidad and Tobago hold more Venezuelan migrants than any other country 
relative to their overall local population. And yet, despite being signatories to the Cartagena Declaration, they don't really seem to have much of an asylum and refugee regime in place. Why is this? Is this something you can speak of? Yes, well, the Caribbeans, are, it's, a, it's a bit of a different story, right? So they are, um, when, you, when you talk about the Latin America, um, usually we, we understand countries that are mainly the Spanish-speaking countries plus, plus Brazil, right? right? So the other countries usually follow different dynamics. And in the case of the Caribbean islands, they, they were not really part of this development of, of, of a new asylum framework, as mm-hmm. we've seen in the rest of the, of the region. So they, they sort of follow a different trajectory. And of course, they would never have expected um, that what happened in Venezuela would, would affect them, uh, at least... You know, if you go back to the early 2000s, uh, Venezuela was still a very wealthy country and, and Trinidad and Tobago didn't really. Also, these are such small countries um, that they don't really expect to, are not really expected to receive huge inflows of migrants, of, of refugees, right? So they don't really have an incentive to develop these policies to start with. So let's stay on this. Uh, let's keep talking about history. Uh, Venezuela used to be a relatively stable democracy and, as you've just mentioned, a relatively wealthy country for much of the second half of the 20th century. But what was Venezuela's actual record in absorbing migrants, refugees across Latin America? And you mentioned earlier Venezuela, along with Panama and the Dominican Republic, was one of these regional outliers. But everyone knows about the millions of Colombians who fled the internal armed conflict to seek refuge in its neighbor to the east. What about those fleeing dictatorships in the southern cone or Central America and the Caribbean? Yes. So um, for the case of Venezuela, it's actually interesting. Venezuela follows a bit the the pattern. So for the for the from the early part of the 20th century until sort of the 1950s, 60s. Much of the migration that took place in Venezuela came from uh, mostly the rest of Europe. Um, so you had people coming from from Italy um, after World War II, Spain, Portugal. Um, you had, of course, uh, migration from the Middle East, such as you know Syria, Lebanon. But that's that's more historical, right? That that happened sort of after World War One and between uh, between that period and the end of the Second World War. In the period sort of that starts from the sixties, seventies. That's when, especially thanks to the discovery of oil, the economy is booming. And so much the, the majority of the migration there, it's skilled migration that moved into the country and it's mostly labor migration. So the number of refugees that we see, especially um, leaving because of the dictatorships in, in other countries such as Argentina or Chile, those numbers are fairly small. Um, and, and effectively, the, when we start seeing uh, forced displacement in Venezuela, that's usual, that's that starts sort of in the late 1990s early 2000s, which is when the um, conflict in Colombia uh, basically becomes even increasingly more violent. And that's where people start moving um, into into Venezuela. And and the numbers, officially, the numbers were around 200,000. But then, of course, it's very difficult to know um, the exact exact number of actual people there beyond the official statistics. Omar, how was Venezuela able to strike a balance between recognizing the needs of refugees fleeing autocracy and violence with recognizing the need for regional diplomacy? And we know that historically, Venezuelan heads of state have uh, traditionally played a very internationalist role in the region. And I would bring up the case, for example, of Carlos Andres Perez, uh, he had friendly relations with Fidel Castro and other regional autocrats. 
And at the same time, his diplomatic leadership played an important role in international conflict resolution, in sort of helping negotiate an end to the civil wars in Central America in the 1980s and 1990s. And I say this as we look to Venezuela's neighbors, hopefully playing a constructive role in ending the conflict in Venezuela. We are left to wonder, what can we learn from the past? Can countries both help migrants and refugees and at the same time play a constructive diplomatic role? Governments in, in the past in Venezuela have been very pragmatic. Um, it's also quite interesting that Venezuela is one of the few countries that was not a signatory of the Geneva Convention. So theoretically, it didn't recognize, um, it didn't have the framework developed to recognize refugees that other countries in theories had. Um, but because the vast majority of of migration was was labor migration and and because of the oil boom it was very easy to absorb all of the migrants that were coming into the country but in terms of the striking the right balance i think there there it comes through to the history of the individual leaders uh and in venezuela of course there were some that were basically left the doors open for for everyone to come in and then at some point borders were closed depending on on the leader of 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 the time but how they they struck a balance i think it's there is a recognition in, in especially in south america that uh, leaders have to be pragmatic um, and that therefore, even if you don't agree, especially if you are surrounded by dictatorships, right, like Venezuela was at some point, right, you might have had Brazil, um, Argentina down uh, even further south, Chile further south still. These are your neighbors, right? You can't change your neighbors. So uh, definitely they recognize that there was a need to engage with them despite despite the fact that they did not agree with their policies. And on the other hand, being able to engage with them while still accepting their their migrants and the displaced people that came from those countries i guess that's a very difficult balance that is that that we see now in the situation in 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 a similar situation now in, in the relation between venezuela and colombia right yeah so let's talk about that and i promise we will get to colombia specifically afterwards um, but let's move a little more to the present, or to the last decade at least. We see various initiatives from successive regional governments in Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, and others uh, in helping absorb Venezuelan migrants and refugees. There was first the PEP in Colombia, what is now called the Estatuto de Protección Temporal, the PTP in Peru, the Permiso Temporal de Permanencia, as well as other initiatives in Ecuador and the Dominican Republic. Some of these countries have now rolled back protections for migrants as negative sentiments against Venezuelans grow. What can we learn from the history of asylum and refugee protections in the continent as we look to the future of human mobilities in Latin America? Well, this is this is a big this is a big question and and and, and an important one. Um, as as your listeners might know, um, in 2018, countries, especially in, in in Latin America, they they came together and and signed what is the uh, what is now known as the as the Quito Declaration, right? Where they said basically we will accept Vene we we accept Venezuelan migrants and refugees. Um, we will accept them even with expired documents. So you could move with uh, an expired passport or your uh, a D card that was not in good conditions. You should theoretically be have been able to move across. The region. Uh, now, said that, fast forward just a few months, and then uh, you, for instance, have the, the example that in June 2019, Chile and Peru, and then followed uh, a few months later in August 
by Ecuador of that same year introduced restrictions for Venezuelans. Because of course the, the numbers were so high for countries that are not used to migration that then uh, public opinion of course made itself heard and then politicians decided to act um, accordingly. Now, what has that led to? That has, has not stopped migrants from moving across borders, right? So none of these restrictions have actually worked. You've seen a dip in the official statistics, but if you talk to people in the field and if you live in any of those countries, you will know that the only thing that these restrictions did was moving Venezuelans towards taking more dangerous routes, irregular routes to get into those countries. So of course, first of all, start with the biggest of all borders, which is the one between Venezuela and Colombia. It's more than 2000 kilometers long. It's basically going from now north to Southern Europe. Um, you have all different types of conditions. You have uh, the Guajiran desert on the north, and then you have sort of a mountainous region in the middle, and then you end up sort of in the rainforest. And it's extremely easy to cross at any of these points in areas that are not controlled by the state, but by different criminal groups. Um, and the same is true for the uh, at the border between Colombia and Ecuador. Also there, it's very easy to cross. And same for uh, the border between Ecuador and Peru or Peru or Chile. So first of all, what we know now is that, and, and this is something that I've actually been working on and um, I've presented about this in and, and there's new research coming out. Um, we know that uh, the restrictions have not worked. So trying to stop them because the situation in Venezuela is so dramatic will not work. The latest... Uh, a data that I saw from the uh, Universidad Católica Andres Bello, um, that they just did a survey of, of the situation in the country. And 90, it's estimated that 94.5% of Venezuelans live in poverty and 76% of them are in absolute poverty, right? So people are going to move regardless of the barriers that governments try to put because they don't have any other option. So this is the first lesson. The second lesson is that there's been research done by, by great economists. There is one published by Danny Bahar, Ibanez, and, and Sandra Rosso. And, and what they've shown, for instance, is that reg the regularizing Venezuela migrants in, in Colombia did not lead to more uh, to less Colombians having jobs, right? So it had basically had a very little impact on the employment of Colombians. So giving them uh, the opportunity to stay in the country regularly does not damage natives, because often migrants um, have skills that are complementary than those of natives, rather than substitute them in certain jobs. And finally, I would say one thing that we know is that because the situation is worsening so much, the international community, the support of the international community is, is needed and is a game changer for many of these countries. Countries in Latin America are not used to migration. And now um, try to imagine Colombia with 2.5 million Venezuelans at the moment. Many of them need schooling. All of them need access to healthcare, social services of various sorts. Um, unless the international community provides them with the support they need, um, they're going to continue to move uh, northwards and take even more dangerous routes. All right, so let's move on to Colombia. No other country in the planet has absorbed more Venezuelan migrants than Colombia. Over 2.5 million Venezuelans are in Colombia approximately. And it's incredible. When I first started my thesis a couple of years ago, that number was at 1.8 million. The new government of Gustavo Petro has moved very fast to reestablish relations with Nicolás Maduro. Now, on the one hand, the Petro administration appears to recognize migration as a net positive for Colombia. 
And he even has, uh, seems to be taking measures to further integrate Venezuelan migrants. So, for example, he recently announced uh, measures to certify educational credentials of migrants. On the flip side, and I should say this is hardly surprising, I think, his government, particularly his ambassador to Venezuela, seems to downplay and even negate the existence of a humanitarian crisis in its neighbor. How do you evaluate Petro's policy towards Venezuela so far? So Petro's approach so far has been fairly pragmatic, I would say. Um, of course, there is a lot of skepticism around, which I which I understand, uh, especially from the Venezuelan side. But I think it's a, I mean, so far he has said, for instance, that he will not send back any any Venezuelan. He will, all the people that are saying that are fleeing the regime are, are, will be allowed to stay in Colombia. This is a good sign. On the other hand, Petro needs Venezuela, needs Maduro, uh, especially in this time, not only to uh, restart again bilateral trade that is very important for both countries and for the economies and the people that live at the border, where we know there is a lot of, of trade and now, now, now that has become irregular trade. But there is also the issue that that because the ELN and, and many guerrilla groups are actually, basically, they work at the border and many of them are based in, in Venezuela, he needs to reestablish those relations with Maduro, especially now that the peace negotiations have restarted in Havana uh, with the ELN, uh, with, with, the, with the help of, of not only Cuba, but also Venezuela and Spain. So um, I think it's very it's a very difficult line to threat. It's it's extremely complex to um, to balance um, being being hard to a, a dictatorial regime and working with it. But I think it's something that again, as I said earlier, uh, you can't choose your neighbors, so you you have to work with them regardless of if you like them or not. And I think this is what Petro has understood, given that the push to oust Maduro that was done earlier on the Duque uh, with uh, by supporting Guaido didn't unfortunately uh, work as expected, especially from an international perspective. So we can't end this conversation without talking about the recent changes to U.S. immigration policy towards Venezuelans. The Biden administration recently presented a plan to give humanitarian parole to 24,000 Venezuelans. It went into effect about a week ago, uh, but the plan appears to be aiming to absorb not just a fraction, but wealthier Venezuelans, rendering the overwhelming majority and thousands of Venezuelans that have crossed the Darien Gap ineligible for this plan and stripped from any asylum protections. Tell us your thoughts on this approach. It really does not seem like it's going to accomplish anything and it actually seems like it will backfire and it will put in danger the lives of all of these Venezuelans who, like other migrants, will now fall prey to traffickers. Um, tell us your thoughts on this approach. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the Biden, I mean, from the Biden administration, this is a political move, and I think this is widely recognized. Um, unfortunately, um, because migration is such a, a policy, a relevant policy policy issue in in the in politics nowadays, and especially now uh, with the midterm coming up, definitely showing that they're doing something about migration um, is is a good sign. But the problem is that, uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, for Latin America, for Latin America, this is more. Uh, about signaling rather than about doing something. So in this case, because it's so difficult to be one of those 24,000 individuals who are able to go directly from Venezuela into uh, the US, because you need to have, not only you need to have a passport, of course, which is very costly for many, for the poorest of Venezuelans, but you need to have someone in the US who will support you, who can guarantee that can support you for two years. 
Uh, and because that's an unsurmountable barrier for most of them, this plan that will not work, will not stop Venezuelans, and, and many of them, especially the poorest, will not be eligible for it. If Biden wanted to do something that could effect- effectively help um, Venezuela migrants and stop the inflow, the first and easiest thing would be to increase the support for the hosting countries of that are hosting most Venezuelans. So uh, helping out Colombia, helping Ecuador, Venezuela, and Chile uh, with the provision of services and trying to, to get the Venezuelans better integrated into, into the host societies. Now, also recently, the UN has restarted working in, in Venezuela. So the, the World Food Program of the United Nations has been providing food. However, this is not enough. The agencies... Um, that work on the Venezuelan displacement crisis, they say that that all of the resources that they need in order to help Venezuelans, only 16% of of the funding that they need has been provided, Mm. 16%. And and when also the Ukrainian uh, migration crisis started with the the Ukrainian war, also many many of the little resources that were already available disappeared. So one thing that Biden administration could do and and other countries such as uh, the European Union could do um, are to provide a practical support both for the UN and NGOs working in Venezuela and in the host and for governments that host Venezuelans. And if it wanted to help Venezuelans move regularly, then it could start also an actual resettlement program um, that would allow the poorest ones uh, to be eligible, right? So without, for instance, the need to have a passport or a um, or at least to, to be able to apply also with an expired passport and by providing them um, with a sort of some sort of subsidy in order to to get the neediest ones on on the planes um, rather than having them uh, make these harrowing journeys uh, throughout the whole of Mesoamerica and North America to get to the US. Is your appetite, though, for these initiatives? Chile's president, Gabriel Boric, suggested regional migration quotas during this year's Summit of the Americas. Do you find this to be a realistic proposal for absorbing Venezuelan migrants and refugees? It's, I would say, it's it's probably not feasible because, as I said, anything that is agreed um, between among the different countries, because no one can actually force them um, to do anything that they don't want. Um, think of the uh, the Quito Declaration again, right? Mm-hmm. So all countries said we will accept Venezuelan migrants, and then fast forward a few months, not even a year, they had already backtracked with their actions and 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 tried stopping them. So. In, in this specific case, quotas would definitely not work. I mean, voluntary quotas, of course, a government can say, you know, I'm willing to accept this number of Venezuelans each year, uh, but then if the others don't do it, then this is a coordination problem that cannot be solved. If we want to think of a, of a recent displacement where a country faced a similar challenge with a much shorter time span, uh, we can think of the case of Ukraine. When Russia invited in, invaded Ukraine, without any uh, reason, reason to do so. Um, the countries of the European Union, using the, the temporary protection directive that the European Union has, allowed uh, basically Ukrainians to move freely uh, among the countries of, of the European Union. And, and, and interestingly enough, although many of them have eventually ended up in Poland, which is the closest country um, to Ukraine, um, the, the pe- people have moved using their networks and have been distributed very, fairly fairly well across the whole of the Union. And I don't think any country bar Poland would be able to say that they're being, they're facing uh, insurmountable challenges integrating Ukrainians. So I would say if the same was done with Venezuelans, if it was recognized that Venezuelans that are able to move to the countries where they have networks, right, where they have relatives, friends, where someone is willing to help them, if they are able to move there, 
then probably the outcome would be the most optimal for one for for everyone both for the host countries that would benefit from having people regularly in their countries um that for instance pay taxes maybe maybe paying taxes in certain instances because we know the venezuelan population migrating is younger is better educated often than the host population so if if this was done uh, the outcome would be better for everyone but unfortunately i see I see very, uh, it's, it's very unrealistic that this will happen over the short term. It's unrealistic and the original institutional infrastructure does not exist at the moment. You can have all the international treaties and agreements you want, but there is no political will to carry these through. You mentioned earlier the Quito Declaration and how a year in, those same governments were already sidelining the agreement. But I'm glad you've offered uh, some policy recommendations or guidance because it really seems proposals like migration quotas or the U.S. plan for humanitarian parole are neither feasible nor realistic. But unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time and chatting about this issue. You've offered some very valuable insights and we're, we're going to need researchers and observers like yourself to keep on monitoring Venezuela migration. At the end of the day, you can't have good public policies if you do not have a good diagnostic of the problem. Omar, that was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Juan. That was Omar Hamoud Gallego, migration and refugee policy researcher and fellow in political science and public policy at the London School of Economics. And this was episode 15 of Veneco, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. My name is Juan Andres Misle. Our theme song, courtesy of Simón Díaz and Amazonic. Hasta la próxima. Las arenitas del río, corren de...